Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're going to take something that you've probably all interacted with on many, many times. So we're going to be talking about today, Monopoly, and its impact on the world. And, of course, as always, the hidden history behind it. Because to fully understand Monopoly, you have to understand early 20th century economic rent laws. You have to understand the very foundation of this thing we call economics. And we also have to understand the different kinds of structures that a civilization can develop and earn money from. So it's a big topic on that board game. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? Let's be honest. If you haven't played Monopoly, you're a bit weird. It is the classic Christmas time type activity, and indeed loads of, of kids at some point, maybe not even at Christmas time, will be playing Monopoly. I didn't realize until much, much later that if I if you're in the UK listening to this and I say something like Old Kent Road or Mayfair, you'll instantly understand that those are the uh, Old Kent Road is the cheapest place that you could buy in Monopoly and Mayfair is the most expensive place. And that means literally nothing to anybody in any other country, because Monopoly was one of the first examples of a board game that was was made relevant to its own local area. And if you think about it, like Cluedo might have been translated into French, but you still had Professor Plum and all this kind of stuff. But it made no sense having the, the road layout of a specific city in America. And it Monopoly is originally American in Britain. So, of course, it was going to change its names to various places in London, which, be honest, again, wouldn't necessarily have uh, read very well in places like Scotland. So, you know, there are now in the modern world in the 21st century, literally hundreds of versions of Monopoly. And it gets weirder because you can have things like... Uh, Star Wars Monopoly, Lord of the Rings Monopoly. There's just so many different variations of the game. It's kind of crazy. I can't tell you, by the way, what the most expensive one is in the uh, Star Wars Monopoly. I'm going to guess Death Star, but I could well be wrong with that. 
Hello everyone, Greg popping up here for the sake of completeness. The highest scoring square on the Star Wars Monopoly board is actually Coruscant. The Death Star actually takes the place of the Yellows. And down at the beginning at Old Kent Road, we have the Swamp World of Dagobah, apparently. So let's take it back a bit, shall we? Yeah, human beings have, have loved playing games since the very beginning of civilization and indeed before. We have found ancient, prehistoric, if you want to use the term caveman, use the term caveman if you want, uh, things that could only be some kind of gaming device or, or some something to just pass the time. After all, this is way before the invention of Netflix, so have at it. The oldest board game that we still have the basic rules from is uh, from ancient Babylon. We are talking about something that's sort of three and a half thousand years old. And so we can keep developing further and further as we, we go along through time. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sort of give you the, the history of board games, but uh, I, mean, I guess one other thing worth throwing out there is most people know that chess is quite old and indeed it's, it's sort of a medieval invention. So that's a thousand years back just for the game of chess. Monopoly, however, was created in the early 1900s. The original one was called The Landlord's Game, and it was created by Lizzie McGee, McGuy. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce the surname. It's M-A-G-I-E, Maggie. Um, <laughs> anyway, Lizzie, let's call her that, Lizzie, created it. And it was a direct response. If you like, it was a political statement, which you wouldn't normally get in something like Cluedo or Chess of Ricardo's law of economic rent. It was basically showing how if people wanted to manipulate the system, they could become a monopoly. Now, let's do a bit of economic definition, shall we? This is where I, I can sort of put my other hat on, because, yes, I love history. And I've written multiple history books, historical novels, this podcast. I do appear on various other podcasts as well. I do talks, uh, historical talks as well. You know, there is a little part of my time and I guess an even smaller part of my revenues that come from the world of history. But they really don't pay the, the bills. So my if like normal day job, I am a business trainer. I talk to companies about how to improve revenues, how to present their case more effectively, how to negotiate, lots of different sort of business skills. Although I didn't actually do that at university. This is why I love history. My degree is in archaeology and medieval history. But pretty quickly after getting that, I realized that's not going to earn me a living. So I fell into a sales job in the media and it sort of it, it all evolved from there, and I'm now a, a freelance business trainer. I work with lots of different companies and basically try and improve their situation through lots of different skills and techniques. And because of that, I've had to obviously learn it through my own years of experience, but also I've sat down and read up on this stuff. So let's start with a monopoly. A monopoly is literally one organization or company that has total control of a certain good or product. Now, it's interesting, monopolies nowadays are, tend to be a dirty word, but it's interesting that if you go back to the Elizabethan era, for example, when we've got all these uh, explorers heading out in all the different directions from the British Isles, literally people like Queen Elizabeth I would hand out, a, a, if you like, an agreement of monopoly. So in other words, if you get to... 
the spice islands of Asia, what we would now call Indonesia, if you went out there and set up a business, you would have a monopoly. You'd be the sole trader to do that. So in other words, why should I risk life and limb? Because you could, it, there's no pot of gold in these islands, but what there is, is business opportunities. And there's been times in the past where certain spices have literally been worth more by weight than gold. So if you, you know, did have access to various spices and herbs and things like that, you would be able to literally make a fortune out of it. But if everybody got to go there, and as soon as you set it up and did all the hard work, then everybody else can turn up and set up their own shops, then it was less of an incentive to go out there and spread. So the monopoly encouraged this exploration uh, and this expansion of empire. We can debate all you want about the validity of empire, but that's the idea behind it, okay? So that's a monopoly. Then we got a word that you probably haven't heard before, an oligopoly. Ooh, what's that? That's when there's a very small amount of organizations that completely control that market. And an oligopoly that you're all familiar with is supermarkets. There are not hundreds and hundreds of different brands of supermarkets. Once you get past Aldi, Lidl, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Asda, Waitrose, Morrison's, you basically run out of all the big ones. That's not to say there aren't other ones out there, but those are the big ones. And so when they go to people like dairy farmers and say, you know, we're going to buy all your milk or, you know, the carrot farmers and say, we're going to buy all your carrots. They have a huge amount of power. And the argument is because they can buy in such bulk, they can pass on these savings to you, the customer. And indeed, if you think about something as basic as a block of cheese, you know, it hasn't spiraled out of uh, out of control in terms of costs over the last 20 years. Yeah, it's gone up, but not massively. But every now and then, obviously, you can see the temptation is if a, if a handful of people can control the entire market, what's to stop them to sort of like secretly get together and have a conversation about maybe we should set the price for carrots at X amount of money. And we'll all make loads of profit and we all promise we won't go off that price and we'll all make loads of money out of that. That's called price fixing and it's actually illegal. And every now and then, particularly with milk uh, in the UK, uh, every now and then they're caught red handed and, uh, you know, they're referred to the government and they're fined millions and millions of pounds. And then they promise they won't do it again. And, and then at some point they tend to. Anyway, let, let's not get into it. So an oligopoly is a bit more flexible because if you like, if Tesco's tried to become too tyrannical, if its terms were too dictatorial and saying to people, you know, oh, you know, it's uh, my way or the highway, there are other options. And indeed, in the list that I gave you, you can tell that some of them service different parts of the market. Aldi and Lidl are very, very low cost. Now, in, interestingly, people think that they're huge. They're not. They keep the, their their stalls actually are relatively small compared to your big Sainsbury's or, or Tesco's or what have you, because it's a lack of choice. If you go in there and you want baked beans, there is baked beans. Oh, you want low salt baked beans? Sorry, no, go somewhere else for that. Oh, you want diet baked beans? No, go somewhere else. You want baked beans with barbecue sauce instead of normal tomato sauce? Go somewhere else. We sell baked beans. So because they basically have one version of everything, they can reduce the size, they can reduce the cost, and you can ultimately get the, the lowest price uh, available. And Aldi and Lidl have good quality food in them. Uh, it's just that... They have this reputation of being cheap in the negative sense of that word. And that's completely unfair. And, and particularly if you're talking about basics, like, for example, milk, 
you know, it milks milk, basically. There are limits to this stuff, you know, there, you know, if anything is sort of like not fit for human consumption, you're not allowed to sell it to humans. So yeah, milk and cheese and eggs and bread and things like that, you know, if it's horrible, it goes to maybe animal feed, but uh, the rest of the time, you're just buying the same thing in different shops at different prices, really. You're buying the name above the, the, the head of the stall. So with that in mind, we then get down to the area where it's opened up to everybody. Everybody, in essence, has an equal opportunity to make money in this situation, which clearly isn't the supermarkets. And that is referred to as a free market. And if you like, this is what Lizzie was pushing against. Because in the 1800s, we have the rise of a new way of looking at society. It's called socialism. Sometimes it's uh, a, a more uh, strict version of it is called communism. And it is worth sort of unpacking it because sometimes these words are almost used like a derogatory words. And they're not necessarily. They're just a different way of doing things. And I'm about to sort of walk you through a little bit about how they work and how they don't work. Because I hate to break it to you, there's no perfect system out there. So let's talk about socialism, uh, a society working together or a commune, communism, working together uh, to, for the greater good, if you like. And the weird thing is that is the very first structure of an economy, in inverted commas, uh, that existed. Because when I was at university, I had to read a paper called Cavemen Are Communists because what these people were pointing out is the fact that when you've got these small family units, what they have to do is survive together. And if you think about the caveman era, the, nobody had a lot of stuff, OK? And, and I'm going to be cliched here, but this is the way we used to survive. The men would gather together, the adult males would gather together and go out hunting for high value fats and proteins, which we would call animals. And basically for all the energy that you would need to put in to, let's say, kill a deer or let's be silly, go for a mammoth. Those that genuinely happened. Um, although the incredible amount of energy taken to do it was repaid a thousandfold because the sheer calorific value of meat, particularly if you just put it over a fire, and we had fire from way back, um, then something like that could keep a family going for a considerable amount of time. Now, the women and children would invariably be getting, you know, it's a hunter-gathering. The, the adult males would be out hunting. Everybody else would be gathering. What are they gathering? They're gathering nuts, berries, uh, fungi, uh, things like that. Uh, maybe even so, some mosses can be eaten. And particularly if you put all these things together, let's face it, a nice deer steak with some roasted mushrooms on top, I'd eat that today, quite frankly. So yes, yeah, so the point is, if if basically the the men going out hunting this high value in terms of calories, food, weren't allowed to do so because they, they also had to look after the babies, then suddenly the, there's just simply less food to, to go around and now you're in a difficult situation. So why should Mrs. Ugg look after the kids and perhaps while holding the baby also look for some some berries? Well, because if Mrs. Ugg does this, then Mr. Ugg can go out and hunt maybe rabbits or something like that. So everybody is working together for a common good. And at the end of the day or at the end of the week, everybody would come together and basically share out what have we get? 
what resources does this unit have to stay alive? And when you put it like that, it, it's really quite powerful. That's how fragile humanity was at the very beginning. That, that's why this paper was talking about, you know, cavemen are communists. Now, they would never have understood the term. They wouldn't have used a hammer and sickle, mainly because neither of those things have been invented yet. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they're, they're, you know, all these things you can push to one side, but it's a deliberately provocative Nay, you get a lot of times in in uh, sort of scientific journals uh, and and papers, you know, be they for archaeology or physics or something like that. Quite often they try and have a punchy opening. You know, even scientists know how to sell their ideas a little bit. And so, for, with that in mind, you know, it, it catches your imagination. You read it and you realise it's more about the the survival instincts of our ancestors in the Paleolithic and Mesolithic eras. Ooh, aren't they big words? But anyway. With that in mind, socialism and communism do actually work. But I don't want you to start thinking, oh, Jim, suddenly Karl Marx. Not at all. Because the problem there is, or the reality is, everybody can share things equally because there's nothing else hanging around. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And as soon as we became sedentary, as soon as we invented settlements, as soon as we invented farming, farming is fundamental. A farm is unnatural. We tend to think of them as part of nature, but no, that is not how nature works. You don't get crops regimentedly grown in rows and you have like, you know, cow shed over there and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. This is all humanity making its mark on the landscape around it. But the point is, at that point, the farmers, well, they need to be protected as they grow the food and raise the cows and that kind of stuff. So, you know, there needs to be perhaps a class of guards, if you like, to guard these people from enemy groups or indeed just Mother Nature, wolves and things like that. So these guards have to perhaps be bigger and stronger than everybody else so they get a better, more juicy 
choices of cuts of meat and things like that. And so very quickly, if I'm the biggest, well, I might shove you around a little bit. And what are you going to do? It. I'm big and I've got the biggest rock to sort of hit you with. So you're going to start doing it my way. And, and this is the theory because nobody wrote this down. But this is the idea behind uh, monarchy and stuff like this. Suddenly, we've got a structure of us and them where everybody now isn't of equal value, where some people can basically gather up more resource and have an easier life in essence. So yes, so you can see how this changes. And now let's skip 10,000 years to the modern world. And if you like, the problem of how pure communism or pure socialism doesn't work is because everybody wants different things and they're all worth different values. You know, you, you often get in, uh, uh, this sort of conversation about, you know, well, who are the greatest people in society? Surely they're teachers, nurses and doctors. These are the people who educate us and keep us healthy. They should be paid the most. And I don't argue with that as a basic concept. But of course, these people don't generate any money. How do we pay for them? We pay them through taxes, and there's only so much tax-paying money to go around. So, yeah, the, these people do not get paid as much as slimy stockbrokers. Everybody loves going to sort of banking uh, as an example, but, it, but, but why not? You know, why is a stockbroker who adds nothing to society paid many thousands times more than a teacher uh, teaching secondary school history? Well, that's because that stockbroker makes money. And if he's going to make money, he's going to expect a cut of that money or he's not going to make as much money. And because, you know, we all want pensions. And this is the thing about sort of uh, people in the banking industry. Quite often they're spending our money, but it, they're spending our money so that we can have things like pensions and like returns on our ices and the things that we need when we retire. I'm not justifying them. I'm explaining how and why it works that way. So that's it. Yeah. If you are a cost, you are always going to learn uh, earn less than the people who make the money. And indeed, if you look at like the chairman of the board of directors of all these big companies, not necessarily banks or supermarkets, but it could be IT companies and thing like, things like that. When you look at the top people in that company, they basically come from two distinct areas of the organization. They're either the accountants who know how to add up the money, or they're the salespeople, you know, people who create the new, new stuff, who make the money. HR, marketing, don't end up being MDs. If, if all this is sounding a bit shocking or whatever, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I'm, I'm not making the rules here. This is, this is how it works. So let's go to, and, I, and you know, I'm aware of kind of the pushback I might be having, and one of the concerns Lizzie has is about free markets. Now, free markets in theory, everybody's got a shot to make their money. If you work hard and you've got a product that people generally want, let's go for something silly, shall we? Let's go for sellotape. Well, you see, already I've given it away because sellotape is a brand name. In America, they call it scotch tape because scotch is the most popular brand. A lot of people don't realize that sellotape is a brand name. We do it all the time. Again, in America, they blow their nose not on uh, tissue. They blow their nose on a Kleenex because Kleenex is the brand that's won. Over here in Britain, we talk about Hoovers because that used to be the number one 
company of vacuum cleaners. And of course, everybody knows a posh Hoover is called a Dyson, even if it was made by Philips. So, so you can start seeing that these various names, are, you know, some companies are successful, some companies aren't. But the ones that aren't successful are selling stuff that nobody wants or selling the stuff at a ridiculously high price that nobody is going to pay. So market forces might be a phrase that you've heard of before. And market forces is basically nobody's in control. But if we all end up buying from Amazon, don't complain that Amazon is making loads of money. And then because Amazon's so powerful, they might try and avoid paying taxes. But are you going to stop using Amazon? It's the problem of out of control free markets. People can sometimes be so, so powerful that they can start to push markets in various directions. They can start dictating terms to the government. I don't want to pay my taxes. Could you imagine you saying that to the government? No. But if you're a massive organization worth multiple of billions, then you might be able to have that conversation. I think I should pay less tax. So you can see how this could necessarily be abused. But the basic idea is if you're walking down a street and in the past you literally had all of the same types of shops in the same area of seats. This is, this is why in Britain, it's not on a monopoly board, but there is in London, Baker Street. Guess what used to be there? Lots of bakers. So you could just walk down this street, you could see the loaf of bread that you like the look of, and because of various legislation dating back to Henry III, King of England in basically the 1200s, until the early 2000s, loaves of bread were basically of two different weights. So nobody could cheat you. And, and therefore, if one guy's selling the loaf of bread substantially more than everybody else, you're just not going to buy from him. It doesn't matter what his sales pattern is. So that is the idea behind free markets. But like everything in the modern world, there's so much complexity that these things can be abused. So there isn't a perfect system. But ultimately, what market forces do is they follow demand. If people are willing to buy the stuff, they will sell you the stuff. That's how it works. Whereas when it comes to socialism and communism, you need somebody to organize and control it. Now, going back to the cavemen, that was something that couldn't actually happen. There was just a small group of them, so it all just sort of happened spontaneously. But if you are ordering what gets built and where does it go and how do we feed the people of Moscow, for example, then you need people to be in charge of the logistics. Famously, when a communist person from the Soviet Union came over to Britain to ask basically how did the free market work, you know, they were sort of showing them how, you know, all the activity going on in London. They famously said, but who makes sure all the bread gets to London? And when you think about it, that is... It is a bit weird. How does Sainsbury's know to have the bread on their shelves that you can buy? But of course, they've worked out that every week we seem to be selling 5,000 loaves of bread. So let's make sure that we have over the course of the week 5,000 loaves of bread in store. Some weeks we have to perhaps throw some away. Some weeks we run out. But basically that seems to be round about the rough number we need. And, and so you can see the flaw in the communist and, and, and socialist systems in the sense that if they start getting the numbers wrong or if they start overproducing just to keep the, the leader happy, you get to huge amounts of inefficiency. And when you look at what the Soviet Union was like by 1990, it was just way behind the West. That's not to say that the people were dumb. There were genius scientists behind the Iron Curtain and things like that. But the point is, it's just not ultimately as efficient a system as the free market. So then we need to come to the very foundations 
of economics themselves. Because although I've been talking about basic economic principles, the reality is that the word is actually relatively modern. To give you an idea, let's go back to Diocletian. He's a Roman emperor, and he had a terrible time with the economy. He tried to fix the prices in a kind of socialist sort of way. Everybody's going to be paying one denarii for a loaf of bread. But because the inflation was rampant across the whole empire, people were willing to pay two denarii under the counter kind of thing. So, you know, he was... If you like, he's an example of somebody who was, in words he would never have understood, trying to come up with economic restraints to fix the economy. And it didn't work for him. And he ended up retiring. He's one of the few Roman emperors who didn't die in office or wasn't assassinated. He ended up retiring. And I love this fact, decided to grow cabbages because, well, you're an emperor. You can do whatever you want, pal. So, you know, there are many people through history have recognized this, this thing called inflation. Prices just keep going up and up and up. And an example of that, again, might be after the Black Death, because between a third and half of Europe's population died, suddenly peasants were actually quite valuable. And they could start commanding better, not necessarily better pay, because they held their land in service to their lord. But if the lord was horrible, well, they could pretend that their family died and they could sort of travel 10 miles down the road, which is nowadays the same thing as a thousand miles, and, you know, hook up with an, another lord who'd be more than happy to see them and give them sort of like equitable rates to farm the land. There's been lots of cases where economics is a part of the history of humanity, but we just didn't use the term until we come to a year. It's a very important year. It's 1776 which to America it's like that is the year of the Declaration of Independence. Fourth of July, yeehaw. But actually, the more you look into it, 1776 is a meaningless year in American history. The fighting started in 1775. Peace wasn't declared until 1783. On the 4th of July, not everybody, not all the signatories of the Declaration were there. It took months for people to actually end up having everybody signing it. This is why in America the slang for a signature is a John Hancock. He was basically the first person to sign the Declaration. Uh, and, and so, no, sorry, 4th of July, 1776 has become a legend. It's, you know, it, it didn't happen the way it, you remember it, but that's okay because that's how history works. It's fine. 1776, uh, oh, the other thing worth pointing out is in 1776, America was losing the American War of Revolution. So, yeah, it's a bad year. You want to be looking more to 1780, you know, Yorktown. That's when you were kicking British bottom. Um, but what was happening in Britain in 1776 is there was a Scottish man called Adam Smith, and he wrote a book called On the Wealth of Nations. And in one book, he invented economics. It's not often, you know, Herodotus, people say Herodotus invented history with his book called The Histories, but there had been history written before that. You get Darwin and evolution, but there were papers sort of like hinting at it beforehand. And, you know, it's only part of the story of biology and, and natural science and things like that. But economics, an entire thing that you can go to university and learn, is literally started with 
Adam Smith in 1776. And he got he got it pretty right. We still use, sort of, you know, the Adam Smith Institute is a highly regarded uh, economic institute that exists to this day. He is an absolute, you know, he is, he should be up there with the likes of Einstein and Newton and people like that. But, you know, people generally don't seem to remember him. And, you know, he uses a famous term called the invisible hand, which is what I've just been describing as market forces. You know, no one person gets to choose what the price of uh, six eggs are, but just overall there's a feeling that it should be a penny in 1776 or something like that. And so everybody kind of agrees, like an invisible hand guiding them. So all of this is encompassed in Monopoly, that game you end up getting very angry with your family about. And what's fascinating is there's been research on this. There are so many local house rules. So a really common one is all the money that you have to pay to, to like community chess and taxes and things like that tends to be put on the uh, uh, in the middle of the board. And if you land on a community chess, or, uh, then you can actually take it all away. Uh, but that's not actually in the rules. And it's one of these games where it's so popular that there have actually been mathematical uh, reports on it. There are some games like Noughts and Crosses, Tic-Tac-Toe to our American cousins, that's considered to be a solved game. In other words, if both parties know what to do, you know, you're not playing against a six-year-old, it, it be, there are only so many moves and therefore it, it, it's done. We know how to do it so it's just a draw every time. It's a very boring game if both parties have relevant skill. Trick is to start in the middle, by the way. Anyway, now, M Monopoly has not been solved. There's still an element of randomness with the dice, but there are literal papers saying because dice rolls, seven is the most common number, you know, a one, a twos and twelves are the least likely numbers to be. So you can start working out where in the board are going to be more likely hit. And you always, always want to be going for four houses. Four houses is always more profitable and costs less than a hotel. If you're slapping down hotels, you're an egomaniac. So, yeah, there are. There are lots of strategies. You can literally go onto YouTube and watch 15-minute things on how to do the best at Monopoly. So if you are that super competitive person, or if you're holding a grudge against dad, then this is your opportunity to sort of swat up on it just in time for Christmas or whatever, um, play a few games, and then it, there's, it, look, there's even different mathematical rules depending on how many people you're playing against, whether it's three, four, or five. It just blows my mind that somebody's taken the time to use solid mathematical theories on a board game. But I don't know about you, but it, again, if you look at the research, and I can certainly warrant this from my own family, Monopoly's a nasty game. And this is the point that Lizzie was trying to make, that you end up fleecing people, that people end up going to jail, that people end up bankrupt, that people can't afford the housing. That is the political statement she's trying to say as your rather stuff with Turkey with the Queen's speech going on in the background. If you like, that period of excess around Christmas is exactly what she's railing against with the invention of the landlord's game, as I will correctly call it. So there we go. Monopoly and the wonderful history behind it, the fascinating in-depth history and, and economics behind it. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you're enjoying these sort of different versions of condensed histories. 
If you uh, want to reach out to me, I'm Jem Daduchu. Funnily enough, that was still available on Twitter. Feel free to sort of slap that as uh, drop me a line. I'm History Gems with a G on Facebook. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. There is still the lovely Greg in the background editing all this. I don't know if he's going to stick on his own stuff at the end saying, hey, talk to me. But, uh, you know, God bless you, Greg, as you edit this. Anyway, to everybody listening, take care and please do spread the word. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.